Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Hosea. It's the first of the 12 minor prophets. So if you kind of start at Matthew and work back through all the little short books at the end of the Old Testament, you'll get to it. If you're at Amos, you're getting close. If you're at Daniel, you're close. It's right in between those. We're going to be looking this morning at Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 through chapter 2, verse 1. So while you're finding Hosea, I want to tell you why we're looking at those particular verses because it seems like an odd place to break off a certain text, right? To add one verse of the next chapter. So I want to remind us that the chapter and verse, that, that those numbers aren't inspired. They were added much, much, much later. And in fact, in the, in the Hebrew, that's, it's got chapter and verse also, and they were added later. But they're different than in our English Bibles. Chapter 2 of the book of Hosea starts at what we call 1.10, right? So, so it's not as random to start and to consider these first three verses of chapter 2 in the Hebrew Bible as a section that we need to look at and think about what they say. It's not quite as random as it seems like it is when we look at it in our Bible. So that's why we're doing this. That's why we're looking at these particular verses. So I, I trust that I've given you enough time to find this little book. So now let's read these verses together, and then I'll pray, and we'll think about these verses and what they say to us this morning. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Most gracious Father, I ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word. I ask that you would strengthen me even now by your spirit, that I might speak in his power only. That all of us who hear your word go out might be strengthened as your spirit applies this word to us. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, as we remember from last week, as I told the kids, last week wasn't, it's not kind of a top 10 most comforting passage in the Bible. It's all of this, he has these three kids and, and he has to name them Jezreel and no mercy and not my people because it's just judgment, judgment, judgment is coming because of your sin. And, and we talked a little bit about the sin. I, I want to remind us what had happened was the, the king had kind of done some good things and, and kind of getting rid of some, some, some bad people. But, but then he continued to allow Baal worship and, and, and Moloch worship. He continued to allow the idolatry of Israel to continue. They continued to worship dead gods made of, of wood and, and metal cast by human hands. That's what they continued to do. 
And so God announces this judgment. You're not my people. You've received no mercy. The, the judgment for what happened in the Valley of Jezreel, all of that is coming. <coughs> but then in verse 10, all of that gets turned completely on its head. All of it. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Right there at the beginning, it's like, wait a minute. This all of a sudden, with no warning, with no transition sentence, nothing. Just all of a sudden, this sounds very, very different. You're telling us we're going to be destroyed. We're going to be kicked out of the land. We're not your people. But then you immediately say the promise that was given to Abraham is still going to come true. Because remember, that's what this is. When we go back to Genesis 12, we see that, that his offspring were going to be like the stars of the heaven. And then in Genesis 13, that same promise is repeated. Your offspring will be like the sand of the sea. And it's repeated a number of times to Abraham. So, so all of a sudden, there's this kind of wild reversal of, of, of fortunes here. Not my people, no mercy. Yet, your offspring will be like the sand of the sea. What's going on? What's Hosea cluing the people of God into here? He's cluing them into exactly what Paul clues us into in Galatians chapter 3. That the Mosaic covenant, which came so many years after the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that they broke, the covenant that led God to say, not my people, no mercy, out of the land. That covenant that came later didn't undo the covenant that was previously ratified. Now, let me take that out of Paul's kind of language and, and put it in ours. The Abrahamic covenant still matters. The promise of God still Stands. He hasn't forgotten what he said to Abraham. And so, so all of a sudden, what we're seeing here in the book of Hosea is he's saying, look, I get it. You've completely bombed. You're done. We can't look at the law and we can't hold your life up next to it. We can't look at Israel and, and all that they did and all that was required and say, yes. This adds up. We can't do that. When we, when, we, when we hold Israel's performance up next to the law, the conclusion we come to is that God is rightly applying the curses found in the law to the people of God because they've utterly failed. They've worshipped other gods. They've not kept Sabbath. They've taken his name in vain. All of it. They've served false and, and, and made false images. They've not honored their father and mother. They've stolen. They've committed adultery. They've murdered. They've done all of it. They've coveted. Remember the story of, of, of Jezebel and Ahab, the, the, the family that Jehu took out? That was the good thing he did. Remember what that story was all about. And Naboth had this vineyard and Ahab wanted it. He was the king that was to be leading Israel led them into covetousness. That's their story. That's their song. Complete and utter lack of assurance all the day long. That's where they live. 
And it's where we live, too. Kind of. Because even though that's where they lived, and even though that's where we live, the covenant promises that God made to Abraham have not been undone. They've not been forgotten. They've not been annulled. They've not been canceled. Why? Because that covenant wasn't a covenant of works. Paul's very clear. It was a covenant of promise. It was God saying, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do something in and through and by and for your offspring. And here we see after the failure of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, God immediately and swiftly drives them back to the promises made to Abraham. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. He is saying, I have not forgotten my promises. Now, why does this matter for you and I? It's easy to see, looking back however long to Israel, it's easy to see why this might have been like a a word of comfort to them. Why is this still a word of comfort to us in 2022? Because if it depends on the promise, if the standing of the people of God depends on the promise, when, when, when what the people of God has done is, is, is blatantly served false idols, blatantly broken all of the Ten Commandments, but done enough to get themselves kicked out of the Holy Land and to be declared not my people, if their standing depends on the promise, then so does mine. And it doesn't depend on me, but on God. It doesn't depend on me doing it all right. It doesn't depend on you doing it all right. It depends on the promise. So why does that matter? Well, here's why that matters. I don't and you don't have to pretend to be something we're not in order for God's gracious word to have something to say for us. I don't have to pretend like, oh, I'm worthy of receiving some grace. I'm worthy of receiving some comforting word from God. I'm holy. I'm pious. I do the things. I I don't have to. No, I can just stop and say, no, I get to be comforted by God because that's what his promise does. You, dear Christian, You get to be comforted by the promises of God despite your failures, despite your sin, despite all of that. You get to be comforted by the promises of God because that's how he's dealing with you. According to his promise to show you grace. Not according to his demand that you earn it. That's why these words are still comforting to us all these thousands of years later. He continues, And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. 
Again, complete reversal, isn't it? He had said to him, you're not, you're, you're not my people. And, and notice how specific he is about this. In the place where it was said to them, I'm, I'm going to do something. It's, it's not going to be random. It's not going to be unassociated from, from what's happening now. I am going to make sure that everything that I'm doing is clear. And this is what's going to happen. It, it, it's going to be said to you that you're not my people. It's been said now through Hosea, but there will come a day where it is said, you are my people. You are my people. You're the children of the living God. Now, again, remember the context here. What had they been doing? They had been serving all of these idols and these graven images that they made themselves, right? So they're out serving dead gods, covenanting themselves to these idols that they made out of metal and wood and stone, trying to get some life from something that's dead. And God re-identifies them with the living God. See, that's, that's why this is significant. Because he's saying to them, listen, I know, I understand. You, you've served these dead gods. You, you've, you've united yourself to them in all of these different ways. But here's what I'm telling you is most true about you. You're my child. You're a child of the living God. I mean, this is just the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? He goes off, he does his thing, he ends up eating pig food, and, he, and he's like, okay, if I go home and I apologize enough, maybe I can be a servant. Maybe, maybe I can like, because of these things that I did before I ran out of dad's money, maybe I have at least a good enough resume that he'll hire me. That was how the, the son, the younger son, was thinking. But he shows up, and that's not what happens. He shows up, and the dad says, absolutely not. He runs to meet him and says, my child. Not my hired servant. Not let me see your resume. Not, yeah, sure, I'll pay you. I'll bring you on stuff. No, my child. You're mine. And you're home. Let's party. It's the most incredible story. It's a picture of Israel. It's a picture of all of us, isn't it? That's what we see played out here in Hosea. No. You're not going to be called, oh, you foul-ups that just barely got it right. No. You're going to be called children of the living God. Not idolaters, though you are. Children of the living God. Why does this matter? Our most fundamental identity the way we need to learn to think most clearly about ourselves is an identity that is declared about us. 
from the outside, not something that is discerned about us from the inside. Our most fundamental identity, child of God, beloved, receiver of mercy and grace, beneficiary of God Almighty, redeemed, forgiven, sanctified. Our most fundamental identity is something that is declared from outside, not from within. He doesn't look at us and search our heart and go, okay, here's here's what's wrong with him. That's how we'll know this one. Here's what's broken in this person. That's how we'll know them. Here's what's messed up about this group. That's how we'll know them. That's what we do to ourselves. That's why we call each other Presbyterian and Baptist and Methodist. We're saying, here's how I'm broken. I'm broken in the same way all these people are. That's why we get along. Not God. He declares something true about us from the outside. That's who we are. And here's why that matters. Because if if my most fundamental identity, if your most fundamental identity is child of the living God, redeemed, restored, forgiven, beneficiary of grace, If that's who you are, then it gives you the freedom to go, well, then why am I how I am? Why am I how I am? If that's who I am, I don't have to hide and pretend I'm something I'm not. I can admit it all. I can lay it all on the table and start dealing with it. And learn to actually be tenderhearted towards others who are also trying to learn how to lay it all on the table and deal with it. Now, we love to apply this idea of, of your most fundamental identity is found. We love to look at people that are sitting and are, are honest about their sin and say, that's not your identity. Your identity is found in Christ. Yes, and amen. But guess what? All of us little theological twits that have memorized the shorter catechism backwards and forwards and get all of our theology right, guess what? Our identity isn't found in any of that either. It's found in Jesus. And so if I don't get to let somebody else identify themselves by their sin when it's something that I think is gross, I don't get to identify by my religious pride because it's grosser. Who we are is who God has declared us to be. Children of the living God. That's who we are. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together 
and they shall appoint for themselves one head. Unity, right? That's what this is about. Israel and Judah had divided. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't figure it out, man. Like they were mad at each other. They wanted different things. They wanted the same thing. They just wanted different people to get pride of place. And so the one people of God, these 12 tribes, divide themselves up into two nations. And lived that way. And unless they got scared, then they might come together for their, for their own, like, comfort. Maybe make a deal to take some other king out, but then, nope, then, then we're, you worship there, we worship here, whatever. They'll be gathered together and shall appoint for themselves one head. Not two kings, a northern and a southern not separate priesthoods, not different places of worship. One. Unity. And, and, and of course, this, this one head is Christ. He's the true king. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the one in whom we are all united. The division that they created among themselves would be undone. This is this kind of point right here is why I'm so convinced of the already not yet reality of the gospel. I put this in the not yet category. Because the faithful Christian life is not one of being increasingly cut off from other Christians because we are increasingly convinced that we're the ones who really get it. The faithful Christian life is one of leaning into the unity of God's people. Into the unity of the one head, Jesus Christ, that we have. It, it was fascinating. On, on my trip to, to England, there's just not as many, percentage-wise, there's not as many Christians over there. And it was amazing. Because one of the unintended consequences of there not being uh, as many Christians was there, there weren't, like, there weren't enough of them for it to be worth it to be mad at each other all the time. Because they wouldn't have anywhere else to go. If, if you want, I was talking to, to a guy named Marcus. He is from Sweden. He came from a town about the same size as Conway. And, and, and I said, hey, in your town, how many churches that, that you would say are evangelical? And, and, and draw the circle big. How many churches would you say there are in your town? He thought, started counting. And he was counting for a while, so I thought my point was going to die. And then he was like, seven? Seven? When I moved here to plant Christ Church Conway, I didn't realize this until we got here. There were 120 churches, the vast majority of them well under the evangelical umbrella. 
Same size town. And he said, so what's the unity like there? (laughs) Sadly, it's not. We fight and and draw increasingly fine lines that, that we may or may not be able to find in the Bible. And, and we think, we think that this like doctrinal precision is a hallmark of the Christian life. But the Bible seems to think it's unity. And it thinks that without denying that there is a faith once for all passed down. It just holds that alongside the fact that Jesus says, hey, don't don't try to rip all the the tares out because you're going to end up ripping some wheat out. Let me sort this out. We don't have to be like the Corinthian church with all the divisions. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. We can follow Jesus. And we can lean into that unity. And lean hard into that unity. I would, and I hope you would too, I would rather get to the end with a whole bunch of friends and Jesus be like, um, why'd you bring this? Then get to the end by myself and Jesus go, what'd you do with all my other people? Because I know how to look at Jesus and be like, you said it was about unity, so I was just like, we seem to love Jesus. I know how to say that based on his word. I don't know how to look at him and say, Uh, Well, I had figured some things out that they hadn't. I had figured some things out about you and your father and the mystery of the Trinity that they hadn't. And so I quit hanging out with them. And so what do we do with this? That's where these two imperatives in in chapter 2, verse 1 come into play. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, why is there the distinction of the brothers and sisters here? It's not that guys, y'all are God's people, and girls, y'all get mercy. Like, no, that's not what's going on here. Remember the, the gender of the kids. The daughter was named no mercy, and the third son was named not my people. So he says, say to your brothers, Say to the little boy that was not my people, you're my people. Say to the girl that, that was lower my, no mercy, you've received mercy, right? So that, that's all that's going on there. So we don't need to kind of be like, oh, women need mercy and guys need to be affirmed. Like, don't do something dumb with what's going on here. That's not what's happening. But here's the question. 
Are we right to say this to each other? Because this is a text that's contextually bound. It was Israel. They had really messed up. They had broken the law. They were said, not my people. They were said, no mercy. They were booted from the land, but they had this promise. My people, children of the living God, you will receive mercy, right? So are we right to apply this to us? Absolutely. 100%. Why? Well, because as Rob read us from Romans chapter 9 earlier, this is what Paul does with it. Paul points back to this verse, Hosea 1.10 through, through 2.1, to remind us that this is why dirty Gentiles get to play. This is why we get to come over. Remember what he said. Even for us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So this has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with how we live with each other. And so what's he commanding us here? To speak to each other this way. You are the people of God. Do you hear that? I'm like, let's just be a little bit odd for a minute, right? I want you to be real quiet, shut up all the things in your mind that, that, that are like distracting you, all the people walking around outside, and I want you to just listen to me for one second. You are God's people. You get mercy. Now take that and tell that condemning voice in your head to stop lying to you. Because it's wrong. Take those words. You are the people of the Lord. You have received mercy. Take that and tell all those confused feelings in yourself that condemn you constantly Calm down. You're God's people. You have received mercy. Take that and, and, and tell that anxious gut that, that's tied up in knots, that keeps you from eating at times, You're wrong about me. You're wrong about me. By God, I am a child of God. I have received mercy. And it had nothing to do with me. And everything to do with him keeping his promise to some old dude that couldn't have kids forever ago and sending this one little boy named Jesus. 
to die in my place and cleanse me from my sin. Dear Christian, this is who you are. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope of the gospel and for the, these clear statements. Would you help us believe them? And would you fill our mouth with these words of encouragement for one another that we might build each other up in love? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.